Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 4th, 2018. This is episode 2139 of the Survival Podcast, 2139. Today I have an interview with Ryan Mitchell on Tiny Houses as a step to debt-free living. Of course, usually on Thursdays we do a listener call show. Did that yesterday. First week's got to come out of the gate topsy-turvy of the year, but uh, we'll be back, like I said, starting Monday to our regularly scheduled program. And in fact, I would say tomorrow... Friday with the listener council show because a lot of guys got off the pikers list and got me responses and we will have an expert council show Friday. We will be back to our regular scheduled programming on Friday tomorrow. Today we do have this awesome interview. We're going to talk about tiny houses and what I like about Ryan Mitchell and the reason I decided to take this interview is he does have some stuff on his website which is at thetinylife.com and uh, he, he uh, with you know the tiny house on wheels thing. But he, he's not out there marketing this thing like your tiny house is a fifth-wheel RV that you can travel the country with. He's marketing this as part of an integrated lifestyle plan that may involve living in tiny houses permanently. We're simply using them as a launch point to get into a lifelong debt-free lifestyle with entrepreneurship thrown into it. So it's right up my alley. Some people seem to think that I am anti-tiny house because of some of the comments I've made in the past. I'm not anti-tiny house. I'm anti-stupid tiny house. I'm anti, we want to be debt-free, so we're on HGTV with this blonde guy, and we're going to build a tiny house, and our budget's $90,000, and I'm a nurse, and he's an idiot that doesn't have a job, and we're going to travel the country together in our tiny house, because you're an idiot. If that's what you're doing, you're an idiot. But if you're doing the types of thing we're going to talk about with Ryan today, they're a valid step for many people in the right direction toward what do we talk about all, all the time? Self-sufficiency, self-reliance, liberty, and independence. So that's what we're going to have Ryan on about in just a minute. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal, as I call them the original survival podcast sponsor. When there was no sponsors, when there was no sponsorship program, There was Vic Rontala and Safe Castle Royal knocking on the door of the Survival Podcast going, we want to sponsor you. I'm like, I'm not even taking sponsors yet, dude. He's like, well, we want to do it. When you're ready, let me know. And they came on board as our first official sponsor. That was eight years ago, eight and a half years ago now. They're still here. Eight and a half years, they've supported the show. So think of them when you are buying something for your self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence needs. They have it all at safecastle.com. And if you are a MSB member, you can get their discount membership for life. Uh, that's a product people pay $29 a year for. You get it free forever. And we are now the only way, the only way you can get a lifetime membership to SafeCastle is through the MSB program. Check them out today at safecastle.com. Next up, Bob Wells Nursery. You want a company that will provide you with bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines, and all the stuff that you can't find anywhere else? You want to deal with Bob Wells Nursery. And these guys also give you a 10% discount for the MSB. You know it's winter. This is when to order your trees for next year. You want to get your trees planted by early to late spring. They're digging trees right now. They're pruning them. Bare roots, easy to ship. This is the time to get your trees. Check out Bob Wells Nursery and uh, get your trees there. And if you're an MSB member, get your 10% discount. You know, if you buy 20 trees this year, Bob Wells just paid for your membership. 
In fact, with the sale you'll hear about in a second, Bob Wells probably paid for it twice, maybe three times with that discount. Because trees add up in price. They really do. And 10% off, that's a big discount. And that's the support we get from BobWellsNursery.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year in history. The year 86 is what we're up to right now. We are at the Battle of Taipei. Or Taipei, I would say is how to pronounce that. Battle of Taipei, contributed by David Verne for the year 86 AD. Early this year, the Praetorian prefect Cornelius Fuchsius builds a pontoon bridge across the Danube and marches into Dacia with four legions, four units of the, or four legions, units of the Praetorian Guard, and numerous auxiliaries, believing that the Dacians are scattered and feuding. Fuchsius advances without proper scouting. There's a reason you have an entire position, this is off script for a second, in, in any military unit called a scout, because you don't do that. You just don't freaking do that. You don't go without intel. Here's what happens when you do. As the Romans enter the narrow pass of Tepe, they're ambushed by several thousand Dacian warriors. Fucius watched in horror as the 5th Adelaide was massacred, And their siege artillery was captured. That'd be like they took all the tanks, just in modern warfare, just so you know. All right, uh, The legion was never reformed. Even more humiliating, the standard of the Praetorian Guard was captured. That's like their flag. And, the Fuch and Fuchsius was killed soon after. Survivors began streaming across the Danube with horrific tales of Dacian falks. A curved two-handed sword with an edge on the inner side of the blade that could cut through a helmet and lop off limbs. Now the triumph, now the triumph Domitian had celebrated last year seemed like a sick joke. The historian Tactius, who commanded a legion before becoming a senator, was enraged, writing, quote, One after another, armies were lost in Mosia and Dacia through the rash folly or cowardice of their generals, end quote. My take by David Verm. The primary weapon of most ancient armies, with the exception of Rome, was the spear, since it was cheap to make and required little training to use. You take a sharp stick and poke people with it, basically, right? The Dacians had many rich iron mines and were able to outfit many of their warriors with the falks. See image below. The falks was extremely effective against the Romans, with modern experiments showing that it easily penetrated Roman armor. The type of armor used by the Romans was Logista Segmenta, which was made of many rigid plates. This was perfect for protecting against blunt weapons and most swords, but it made it vulnerable to the falks. The Dacians had adopted the Roman shields and tactics, adapting them for their own use. And if you looked at this thing, it kind of looks like a brush axe or something. It's like a two-handed sword, but the sword curves outward, kind of like a hand sickle, but a giant hand sickle with just a modest curve to it. You can check out the TSP Wiki page 86 to see this. You can see how if someone were in armor, the type of armor the Romans used, this would be pretty deadly, not only with the ability to hack through, but the point and the way the point would come in with leverage if you were swinging it overhead like a baseball bat, let's say. And this is, this is something that happens to armies throughout history, and it's something we need to be mindful of as we're so proud of our technology. Militaries that develop superior technology become dominant in every battle that they fight. And eventually they become overconfident due to their technology. And the minute something breaches that technology, since everything that they've built as far as maneuvers and tactics, uh, deployment times, strategies... Ex, uh, extraction, right? Exit strategies. And, and you said so we don't have an exit strategy. We always have an exit strategy. Maybe not to get out of the theater, but to get out of a battle, right? All of these things 
are built around the core technologies that make you a dominant fighting force when you're a dominant fighting force. So when something breaches that, it breaches everything. Again, something we need to be mindful of because we do have the most advanced technology in the world from a military standpoint today. But all it takes is one false that breaches the armor and the mighty fall quickly. That's reality. And it's something we need to, again, remember, history doesn't repeat itself, but it always, I'm going to change it from often to it always rhymes. History always rhymes. Anyway, with that, let me remind you, right now we got a sale on the MSB, 30 bucks a year for new members or expired existing members. Discount code 2018. Did a post about it yesterday. You can see about it. I also take cryptocurrency. Everything's there on the post. I'll have a link in the show notes today where you can see the post about the discount, but it gives you great, great deals. Guys, think about it right now. It's the time of the year to get ready to plant your trees, to start your seeds for your annual vegetables, all that stuff. The four seed companies and Bob Wells Nursery, at 30 bucks a year, are you kidding me? It's free. If you grow a garden and you plant trees and shrubs every year, your membership is free at 30 bucks. And guess what? It's free for life. Another quick reminder before uh, we get our special guest on. Free State Project. Liberty Forum, February 2018. Keynote speaker Jack Spierka will be giving the kickoff keynote address. That is me, yours truly. I will be there doing that. I will be doing a, a panel with some other really great professional podcasters on podcasting to spread the message of liberty and to use for entrepreneurship. I will also be doing a standalone presentation. I think at this point I have decided and come down on the fact that I'm going to do aquaponics as my standalone presentation since my Keynote will be on liberty and freedom and things like that. There's no need for redundancy. And I think that aquaponics is something that works anywhere and for everyone when presented the right way. And I'm pretty good at presenting things the right way. So I'll be doing those three presentations. But there is just going to be an ass load of awesome presenters at Free State Project. And you will find yourself surrounded by hundreds of people that love liberty as much as you do. Even if you're never going to move to New Hampshire and be a free stater, and I'm not... It's a movement worth being involved with, and it's people worth meeting, and you will meet plenty of people there from all over the country, possibly even from your own backyard, that you would have never known were liberty-oriented people. It will change your life, and you can get a discount with the MSB discount, or actually the TSP discount code for everybody, which is also in today's show notes. You can find the link and get on over there and sign up. I'd love to see you there, so please come on out. And with that, let me introduce our special guest at this time. His name is Ryan Mitchell. In 2009, he started the TinyLife.com, where he documented his journey to tiny house living and a debt-free life. He publishes tons of articles there on building your own tiny house, getting into the tiny house lifestyle, all the different things you need to know to be able to build a tiny house and entrepreneurship, because those two things go together in his world, and I think that's a great thing. And with that, hey, Ryan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, right, man, we got you on today to talk about your website, thetinylife.com, which I've checked out. I think is awesome. And tiny house living as a step to debt-free living and self-employment. I think that's an awesome topic. But before we get into that, so the audience can kind of connect with you, let's, let's go back to like Ryan is sitting in study hall in 11th grade, picking his nose and looking at a girl and trying to figure out what the hell you're going to do with your life. Like, how did you, you know, what kind of career path did you take in life before you got into what you're doing now? How how did it lead you there, that type of thing? Yeah, so I I started out uh, pursuing kind of a career in HR, human resources, mainly doing recruitment. So uh, my my background at that point was 
basically taking job requisitions, finding the people to meet them, interviewing them, pre-qualifying them, and then, you know, interviews, hiring, that whole process. Uh, and that, you know, that, that kind of guided me um, through college. I just kind of latched onto it. I found myself spending more and more time in uh, the management department and, um, you know, from there it kind of grew into, you know, the beginnings of a career and that's when kind of things took a turn and led me to tiny houses. We can get into that a little bit later, but that's kind of the, the backstory for me. Cool. I bet you that that background probably helps you from a business standpoint and certain things today, but I'm just going to go out on a limit and say, now that you're like doing your own thing, you're probably a hell of a lot happier than being in HR. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's just, you know, corporate is just a different world. Yeah. And um, I started out at, like, really big companies. I worked for a pharmaceutical company. I'm not going to mention the name, but one of the bigger ones. And then I noticed I was, like, as I was progressing and getting new jobs, uh, I was going smaller and smaller and smaller. And then one day I found myself self-employed as a company of one, and that suited me pretty well. So here we are today. Very cool, man. So... What are the basics around tiny houses? What are they? You know, uh, why did you decide to live in one? Yeah, so kind of my origin story for tiny houses is basically um, it started about four years before I, I went to self-employment, but uh, I was working as a recruiter and um, at a company uh, doing really well, you know, just came off of like a really good, uh, you know, review uh, from my boss and everything and the owner comes in one Friday afternoon and says sorry guys we're closing the company today you're all out of a job and it just sent us reeling obviously and you know I was that was like my first real like adult career job uh, out of graduate school and uh, you know, luckily, and this was back in the recession around 2008, and it kind of like opened my eyes. And I think it was like a really difficult lesson for me to learn, but it was a really necessary one. And I just realized, like, I never want to be in that position again, where you know I can work hard, do a good job, and still not have job security. And that's when I started my four-year journey to tiny houses and. Uh, the the main impetus there was I looked at my budget. I saw about half my income was going towards housing, insurance, utilities, those kinds of things. And I said, crazy question, what if I could just eliminate that line item? Like I had no idea how I was going to do it at that point. But uh, I said, if I could figure it out, the wins would be huge, right? Because when people talk about budgeting or getting out of debt, they're like, okay, well, we need to cut out lattes. Lattes is not going to cut it. Like, you need to make some big changes, and I knew housing was going to be one of those types of changes that was going to be a paradigm shift for me. Uh, so I went, started looking around and considered a lot of options, and I finally landed on tiny houses. And from that point, it took me about four years of, you know, researching, learning, saving up money, uh, just kind of getting to where I wanted to in my career because I was kind of also trying to change the trajectory of my life as well. And uh, yeah, after four years, I moved into my tiny house and I've been living it ever since. And that was over four years ago. And about the same time, I made the shift from, uh, you know, working as a corporate person to self-employment around tiny houses. 
And then, uh, so what tiny houses are is basically, you know, any dwelling, and people always try to push me for a number. And what I usually say is about 250 square feet per person. Uh, you know, so if you have a family of five, a, a tiny house or a small house uh, could be a thousand square feet. That's fine. You know, that, that's not a big deal. Uh, I'm not super married to doctrine about like, you know, it has to be 100, 200. We're going to take away your tiny house membership card because you <laughs> right. didn't say 96 square feet. You yeah. hate the planet, Ryan. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. And if someone yeah. Like, gives you trouble, you just say that the guy who wrote the book, because I literally wrote the book, the, the number one selling tiny house book I wrote. So I, I have some authority in this matter. <laughs> uh, you are in a tiny house if you're, you know, just living intentionally. I think that's the big thing. Um, and, you know, there, there's other aspects to it that I'll obviously get tied to it. So, like, the, the eco-friendly side of it, the budget side of it. Um, but I think it really boils down to people just sitting down and saying, what is right for me? What is the life I want to lead? Um, and then moving forward with that intention to build a life that's right for them. And I think if you're doing that, you're living tiny. Yeah, I'm not big on telling other people what they should do to be able to use a word. Um mm-hmm. And so not being exact, that's cool and all, but let's, like what you can be exact about is well, what you, what do you live in? So can you describe your tiny house, kind of the size, the layout, the design, the cost, the build process, et cetera? Yeah. So my tiny house is 150 square feet plus a sleeping loft. Uh, so in the sleeping loft, I have a queen-size bed, so that can kind of give you some idea. It's about half the size of the house. Um, when you walk in the front door... Uh, you, you kind of walk into the main living area. It's like the living room. We joke and we call it the great room, even though it's like <laughs> 60 square feet. Uh, but it has really tall ceilings. It's 11 half foot ceilings. Um, lots of windows in the whole house. I think, uh, you know, my house is 150 square feet. I think I have 15 windows and skylights in the whole thing. So lots of natural light. Uh, it's all kind of light, natural wood. And um, when you go to the back half of the house, on the left-hand side, you'll find the bathroom. And on the right-hand side, you'll find the kitchen. And then above those two on the back half is where the sleeping loft is. Uh, the house is built on a trailer. Uh, my house is off the grid 100%, except for I have city water. Uh, but, you know, I get all my power from solar. We handle all your, your sewage stuff uh, with composting toilet. And then I use gray water systems to, you know, kind of handle gray water. Very cool. Um, you, I read on your site something to the effect of it's not about the house. Or if you think it's about the house, you've got tiny houses all wrong. Right. Like, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so like, I get lots of interviews and lots of questions and all this kind of stuff about the house. And I think that the number one thing – and it, it's easy to latch on to the house, right? Because it's like this physical thing. It's it's a, a nice-looking house, whatnot. Uh, but really what it is is the tiny house for me, and, you know, talking with a lot of other people, this is the case too, is that uh, the tiny house is a tool, right? I sat down and I said, what, was, what do I want my life to be, right? When I was uh, laid off from that job way back in 2008, and I was just – my head was spinning. I, I said, okay, enough's enough. What do I want my life to be? I was 24 at the time, I think. And, you know, 
I had my whole life ahead of me, and I just knew like this was the time to to make a change. And so, yeah, when it comes to tiny houses, it's all about the intention and you figuring out what's right for you. If living, you know, in a three thousand square foot house with two point five kids, married, and a you know convertible in the garage, if that's you, do you? You know, like, I'm not here to tell you what your life is as long as you're intentional and i think that's probably going to be the larger impact of the tiny house movement as it will is that uh we're exposing people to alternative ideas that there are other options and that they people should start questioning what has been laid out for them because the truth is if we don't make these decisions corporations are really happy to make them for us right and they'll charge us a pretty penny to do it and there's a whole uh, you know, infrastructure of marketing and advertising uh, and, and things to convince us that we need uh, shiny things, expensive things, whatever the thing is, right? Uh, they'll do it over and over again until our dying day. Uh, so we just need to take ownership over our own lives. And tiny houses is one of those things that for me, I said, this is the life I want to lead. Uh, a tiny house is going to enable me to achieve those goals. And the second that it doesn't help me in those reaching those goals or I have you know reached those goals and it's not serving me anymore, then I move on, right? It's not something that, uh, you know, if you go tiny houses, you always have to go tiny houses. It can be a, a stepping stone for many people. And, uh, you know, it's been very successful for them in the past too. Yeah, very cool. Um What's it actually like to live in a tiny house full time? You know, I, I watch the shows and all, and I think, well, great for them, but I don't, I don't know about for me. And I guess that is part of your message. But like, what's it like to adapt to living, you know, in a couple hundred square feet? Yeah. I, so when people like conceptually hear about tiny houses, they're often very skeptical, and I was the same way as as well. Um, what's interesting is when. Even some of the more staunch skeptics step into one of these things. Like, they kind of, it just clicks for them. They kind of get it. And it may not be right for them. But, uh, you know, I, I think what, when I was building my house, it took me about a year and a half to build. Uh, cost me about 35000 And that was with all the solar panel systems. And that was a pretty, you know, pretty big chunk of all that. Um you know, I, when I was building it, I, I was a little bit nervous, honestly, because I was putting a lot of money. You know, I was young, $35,000 yeah. is not an inconsequential number for anyone at any stage of their life, but especially as a young person. And, uh, you know, I was putting a ton of time and effort, and I was a little worried, like, what if I don't like this? And what I said to myself was, all right, I, I'm putting in this amount of money, and I said, uh, regardless of how it goes... Uh, I'm going to stay in it for two years because what I did was I, I calculated what the cost of living was, you know, for rent and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And I knew, knew at two years, if I stayed in my tiny house for two years, I literally could walk away from that house and not be any worse for wear compared to if I had just continued on with rent. Money's money, right? Money is it, money, right. Right. And there's some there's some value to the underlying asset. Even if you don't get what you put into it, you'd actually be ahead you know, like you said, you could have walked away, threw a match on it, and you would be in the same place, right? But there's always some underlying value to the asset, unless you 
build a disaster, I guess. Right, yeah. Um, and that's how I kind of treated it was like, uh, I'm going to go into this, I'm going to live in two years, and the assumption that I'm going to operate under is I will not be able to sell it. Now, I, I at this point, I know that I could sell it and I could turn a pretty good you know, price for it. It wouldn't be uh, compensating me for all my time, but, you know, I have had, had a, a house that I've lived in uh, rent-free, you know, cost-free for four years at this point, but, and I still enjoy it. Um, but, you know, the living, once I actually got into the house, uh, it was interesting because, you know, I had that nervousness kind of built up, and then I moved in, and it was just, incre- it, it's hard to describe. It was like the most comfortable space I've ever lived in because I designed it so well. I spent so much time on the details. And, you know, the nice thing about tiny houses, you make it exactly for you. Uh, so, like, my front door, my shoulders are 27 inches. I made my front door 30 inches, <laughs> you know, the width. So, like, it's just like – and that's just one example and over and over again. Like, everything is designed for me. So it's just one of the most comfortable places I've ever lived. And uh, I, I just love every part about it because I've – you know, paid attention to the details and, uh, you know, chose everything and, and made sure everything was done right. And, uh, you know, just had a lot invested in it too, but yeah, I find it to be a really comfortable life. It certainly isn't without its, you know, it has pros and cons like anything. Uh, but it, it's done exactly what I wanted it to do for me. And I live a pretty comfortable life in it. Very very cool, man. Um, what's it like to live 100% off grid with solar? Can you can you kind of tell me about your setup and what? I, I don't even know what climate you're in, so I think that that also has a lot to do with things like yeah. air conditioning is harder than heating. You know, when you're off grid. So uh, I live in North Carolina, okay. uh, and that's a a pretty good state for solar gain. Um, there's certainly some better ones, but it's it's a pretty good one in general. Uh, my System is a 4,000 watt panel system. I think I have 12, 12 panels at like 280 watts each or something. I, I don't know the exact math. Um, I have 12 L16 Trojan batteries. They're, you know, deep cycle lead acid. Uh, I think it's a 1,500 amp hours total. Um, you know, and then your your inverters and your combiner boxes and charge controllers and all that. Uh, in, in terms of living in, you know, or on solar and things like that, uh, it, it's a little different. You like you, you have to be more attuned to what the weather is, right? Because I know if it's been cloudy for four days, like okay, maybe I'm I'm just going to turn on the fan today instead of turning the air conditioning or something, uh, or like you know whatever the case is like maybe I'll, I'll pull out the the propane heater because it's we have a week ahead where it's gonna be all cloudy and i i need to kind of preserve the the, the power in the banks um in general it isn't a whole lot different i've found just because i designed my tiny house from the ground up to be geared towards solar so every every light in the thing is led um, I have a propane uh, cooktop and I have a propane uh, hot water heater. So it, t- I think, one like standard grill sized tank lasts me about two months 
two, two, two and a half months for cooking and, and heating my hot water. And I like long, hot showers. Uh, so, like, I think you could probably go a lot longer. Um, I also really like to cook a, a lot. So I'm using my stove a good bit. Uh, and then, uh, you know, in, in the summers, it's great because I can, like, crank that air conditioning up or, or down, if you will, uh, as much as I want because I don't have a power bill. Uh, and there is so much sun out in the summer that my panels are just sucking up that power and I can't even put a a dent into the battery bank. Uh, so I keep my house at 65, you know, all, all summer long. And we have really hot summers here in, in Charlotte. Uh, so, and they're hot and they're humid and it's just muggy and sometimes pretty miserable. Uh, and then in the winter, uh, I think the winter is probably the more challenging part because, um, my system, I have a mini split system, which uh, is basically you have a compressor outside and then a air handler on the inside, and there's a, a line set that connects the two. And they're very – if you've ever been to Europe, they're all over the place, and they're coming to the U.S. more and more. Uh, but they're very efficient. Uh, so, um, you know, I think my in – the, in the summer, it uses about four or 500 watts uh, to cool my air. And then in the winter, it's like six to seven hundred watts to do heating. Um, and then you have the added complication in the winter because uh, your sun is at a lower angle. So you're getting less solar exposure and the days are shorter as well. Uh, so the, the advice I always give to people who are considering going off the grid is, uh, you know, uh, make sure that you size your, your panels and your battery bank to the worst day, right? Because if you do that, if you know that you can make it through the worst day, which is typically like the yeah, end of January uh, for most people, uh, then you know that the rest of the year is going to be a cakewalk. Uh, so in, in general, it's not that much different. You do have to kind of give some consideration. And then the other thing is, and this kind of ties into just being prepared, is like you need a backup system for everything. So like – I always keep a couple one-gallon jugs of water underneath my sink. I always have a little propane heater. I always have a little uh, butane cooktop stove thing. Uh, I have a battery-powered fan uh, and a, a lantern with you know that runs off batteries. So uh, if you live off-grid, you just need to know that you need to have some backups because sometimes – uh, things go wrong, and you're the power company, right? I can't call Duke Energy and say, hey, my power is out, because they're like, well, too bad. That's your deal. Um, so, yeah, you always need to have a backup source and, and plan with that. And it just works really well and ties in well with being prepared. Very, very cool, man. So um, why do you suggest people choose a tiny house as a stepping stone to debt-free living? Um or, you know, starting your own business, both kind of, you kind of market those together. And mm-hmm. are you kind of coming from a standpoint of like, you know, a tiny house may be a piece of your lifestyle that eventually, you know, maybe you won't always be in a tiny house. Like, wh- wh- where are you coming at with that? Because I, I really like the concept of the way you've kind of married entrepreneurship, debt-free living, tiny houses. The word I really keyed in on is like stepping stone. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh I think it all starts with, again, going back to that intention, right? What 
do you want for your life? Uh, what are your goals? You know, let's let's make those really clear. And a lot about what I talk about on my website, thetinylife.com, is just how do we get clarity around those things? Uh, and, and for me, and why I think it works well for entrepreneurship in general, is like when I was sitting in my my corporate job, right? I was sitting in that that terrible cubicle and I was staring at that wall and I, I can see it now that just the, the, the those cubicle walls that just like suck your soul out. Uh, you know, it, I, I said, okay, I need to make this jump, but I, you know, I'll be honest, I was scared, right? It's scary. Like no one in my family uh, and really no one that I knew had ever kind of done an entrepreneurial type of venture. Uh, and you know, that really consistent paycheck, that health insurance, and all those other things that goes with a corporate job uh, kind of held me there. And, and then I said to myself, okay, if I'm going to make this job, I need to get my living expenses as low as I can because, uh, you know, in entrepreneurship, we have this thing called a runway where it's basically how much money you have in the bank and how long will that that last you, basically. So. At that point, I had six months of living expenses uh, tucked away, and I said, okay, I need to make this work. And, and I was working on my website kind of concurrently when I was at my uh, corporate job, but I kind of went all in at, at that point. And so for people who are wanting to get debt-free, people who are wanting to you know, take a stab at entrepreneurship or, or do some other kind of life-changing things, you know, maybe it's leave your high-paying job and take a, a little bit lower paying job that just like actually like resonates with who you are and you you find enjoyment out of it you know um, wh- whatever the case is you know the ability to reduce your monthly expenses down to near zero you know besides food and things like that like just your your housing costs because uh, the average American spends between forty and fifty percent on housing and that's been creeping up. Um, over the years. So if you're able to reduce that, then you're able to take more calculated and less risky risks, if you will. Um, And it just means that people might have the more confidence to start a new business, to make a life change that's going to serve them for the better, to make them happier, uh, healthier, whatever the case is, to pursue. And when people get that chance to take ownership and control over their lives, it's just, I've seen it a million times at this point. It's like one of the most empowering things for those individuals. Uh, They're just happier, they're healthier, uh, you know, they they seem to get luckier, Uh, they're working more hours, but they love every minute of it. It's it's an interesting uh, effect. So, yeah, tiny houses are, are a way for you to reduce your living expenses, uh, and, and then you can make those those changes. Um, and in the case of debt-free living, we haven't talked about that a little bit yet. But um, you know, for me, one of the big things with tiny houses is I wanted to get debt-free, and I didn't want to have anything like holding me back. And it, it has been able to do that. So I moved into my tiny house within uh, six months or a year. I paid off all my student loans. Years ahead, uh, I was able to put a massive uh, 
you know, chunked down for my uh, a new car I needed to, and then I was able to pay it off very quickly. I then built new businesses, which uh, took my what my old corporate income was and like, you know, quadrupled it basically uh, very quickly, faster than I would if I was trying to rise the corporate ladder, uh, and it, it just meant that money was a lot different picture for me. And uh, I know a lot of friends that have done the same thing. They had huge amounts of debt, and they were able to crawl out of that hole and were so much happier for it. So, yeah, tiny houses are a stepping stone to whatever the goal is that you want in your life. Yeah, and I imagine it makes it easier. Like, entrepreneurship is all about being able to take certain risks. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the time, multiple time, you know, scary. Yeah. Scary. Well, uh, scare is directly in proportion to the risk associated with it. In other words, when you are on a, let's say you have one of those like really cool uh, skywalks up off the side of a, <laughs> yeah. uh, a, a skyscraper, and you can see through the glass, and it's scary, but you'll still get your ass out there and do it because you know it's like eight inch thick bulletproof glass, <laughs> and it's an experience, but nothing really is going to happen. So it's still got that little like in your gut. I don't know about this, but like. If somebody said, here's some suction cups, go out there and pretend to be Spider-Man on the 80th floor, you're like, yeah, no, because I actually can literally understand the potential for me to go splat, right? So when you are in a position where either you're debt-free or you are eliminating your debt, or especially once you've eliminated your debt and you're acquiring cash reserves, it's got to free you up as an entrepreneur to be less risk-adverse and therefore take more shots, and the more shots we take, the more balls go in the hole. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, before when I was in my corporate job, uh, I was really, you know, I, I just put up all these walls in front of myself. And I think one of the things that entrepreneurship has kind of helped me with is identifying those things that uh, are limitations that I'm putting on my own self versus what are like true limitations. So like your example, like if I go with suction cups up the side of a, a building, that is a true and like reckless risk, right? Whereas if I, you know, stash cash away, reduce my living expenses, uh, work hard to get a product launch, and then make the leap, and then you know, am just like killing myself to make it happen every single day uh, with a you know a solid plan, like those are two very different types of risks. One has a real negative downside you know at, at the end of the day the other one i could go get a job at mcdonald's if i really had to uh or you know pick up my old career you know you know hold my hat and and beg back into that old job that i left or whatever um it, yeah so i i think with entrepreneurship you you develop a better sense of like what are the true risks you understand yourself a little bit better to what's holding you back and uh, and then you also, you know, you get better at the game, right? Like entrepreneurship in a way, it, or at least for me sometimes, it, it's like a game that I'm playing. And it's the hardest game I've ever played, and I'll never beat it, but I love every minute of it. And, uh, you know, I get better, and I get more tools in my toolbox, so the next time, the next business, I get better, and I build it faster and more profitable, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think... Entrepreneurship allows you to just be more in tune with yourself and the, the risks and barriers you put on yourself. I agree with that. I think another part of it is so if you can get yourself, and it doesn't matter whether it's through tiny houses, it doesn't matter whether it's through 
entrepreneurship. It doesn't matter if it's through nose to the grindstone, living within your means, saving your money, paying off your debt, not going to stupid. If you can get to the point where, like, I've got money in the bank, I've got a surplus of income from whatever source it is mm-hmm. every month, more than I need, and I don't have any debt, then I think it's the only way that people in our modern society can actually behave like human beings. Because yeah. I see people who are not in that position, because it's the majority of people out there, and they don't act like human beings. They make irrational decisions, and they make decisions sometimes that are rational for their situation. Mm-hmm. But if you change their situation, they would, no matter how much they try to convince you, right, that this is what they want to do, you're like, no, no, that's not what you <laughs> want to do at all. You really don't want to do that. I mean, ironically, our song of the day today at the end of the show is Working Class Hero from John Lennon. All right, yeah. And, you know, and there's a line in that where he says, you, you still look like an effing slave to me. Yeah. And, and it's kind of what you're making me think of. It's ironic the guy that does my song selection for the show is, like, always hitting these, you know, <laughs> awesome synchronicities. But, I mean, seriously, that's that's how it seems. And, it, like, that's why I teach so much on this show about entrepreneurship, debt freedom, things like that, because – you can't do the things that you really want to do until you have at least enough freedom to be able to do it without, well, gee, I won't be able to pay my rent next month, or I won't be able to make my mortgage, or my, my kids will go hungry next week. Mm-hmm. Those are points where, like, when you're up against that, you're going to do what you need to do versus what you want to do. And I think ah, you can go the other way. Like, you see people win the lottery and they kill themselves with cocaine in a year, right? Right. So, like, you can go but, – but in general – not having like so much freedom, you can just do any stupid thing you want to be able to do the things that you actually want to do, and that seems to be like a core part of the philosophy that you're working with here. And a tiny house is just one of many components toward building kind of that portfolio for life. Yeah, I think you're, I mean you hit it right in the nail on the head. Like when you have control over your life, you are financially you know don't have debts. Uh, you have money in the bank that gives you a runway. Uh, what that does for you is it gives you options. And, and we can put another name on that. It's called freedom, right? Because if I am living paycheck to paycheck, I have debt, debtors calling my house all the time. I have no option other than to stay in that job or maybe at the best take another crappy job uh, that you know I don't like. There may be situations where I feel like I'm compromising myself or like it's just not what I want to do, but I am stuck in that job because I need to you know, meet my responsibilities because I'm an adult, and that's what adults do is we, we have obligations and we need to meet them. And so when you suddenly don't have debt and you have you know, this little chunk of cash in the bank and your living costs are low, however you – do that, uh, tiny houses or otherwise, uh, you have options. So like if you have an employer that is just, you know, being abusive or taking advantage of, of you and your coworkers, you can say no, right? And if they fire you, then, well, it's okay. We have six months of living expenses in the bank and I'm going to find a job and we'll, we'll move on. Uh, but you're, you don't have to compromise yourself. So, yeah, I mean, tiny living, debt-free living, entrepreneurship, uh, they all build in these, uh, you know, this option for, for choices and freedom. And, yeah, that's the way humans really should be living, right? Is yeah. They, they choose the life and they want the life that they're living, not because they're forced into it. 
So you're part of one of the probably most uh, attacked generations in history, though. <laughs> I'll tell you, don't it'll pass and it'll be the next one's turn because I was a Gen Xer and we in the ninety early nineties we were the the worst people ever. Um, but I, I think there is some legitimate to see in the criticism of millennials being entitled. Uh, you know, being outraged that they can only stay on their parents' health insurance till 26, things like that. What's it like? You know, you have contemporaries, obviously, would also be millennials. Being self-employed in today's world as a millennial uh, and, you know, looking toward the future is, uh, with that. Yeah, I mean, so I've gone round and round on this because, obviously, I am I am a millennial. Um, I, I work for myself, and, uh you know, I, I see the criticisms and and they just piled on. I, my favorite article was like forty seven industries that the millennials are killing, and it was stuff like napkins. Like millennials are killing the napkin industry, and it was just like over the top. Huh? How? Yeah. I I've heard it all, but okay. yeah, I know. Like, I, I I forget the article, but uh, the exact title, but it was something like that. Forty seven industries that the millennials are killing, and it was almost laughable. But uh, you know. It, this is what I'll say about millennials. It's like uh, I've I've met so many millennials uh, in my entrepreneurship journey. I uh, one of my businesses I started a co-working space, and it, it skewed very much towards millennials. Uh, and every single day, I met these really amazing, hardworking people that were self-employed and knew that no one owed them a damn thing. Like they had to hustle every single day and if they didn't make that money it was their own fault right if they didn't close that sale it was because they didn't sell right if they didn't deliver on the project it wasn't because of anyone else because there is no one else they own their own company they're on their own and at the end of the day the buck stopped with them so i would say absolutely there are millennials out there that are entitled and everything like that um i would also counterpoint to say like i find that in other generations as well <laughs> Yeah, I was just saying there's people out there that are entitled. And, you know, what I always say in defense of your generation is, well, we created them. Yeah. Right? They, they, they didn't ask for a participant or Asian trophy. We gave them one. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, you got to – but I, the other thing I always say, though, is there is some validity to it. Mm. And that means if you're a millennial that wants to get out there and kick ass, that's what you're competing with. Yeah. And you have the internet. Like our generation, we we found the internet eventually. We're like, oh, this is cool. When we were, you know, the age, of, and see, I think that's the other thing. Like millennial is a pretty broad swath of time as they define it. And I see a big difference in millennials that are like this kid that works for me. That's at the like the tail end where you go into whatever they're going to call the next one. He's nineteen, and my nephew, who's thirty six. Mm. Technically, they're both millennials. Right. The mindset is very different, but of course, I'll tell you this, my mindset at 36 was a hell of a lot different than when I was 19, <laughs> yep. so I think we could be too hard on that, but I, I, I do think like if you are 19 and you have the attitude that a person like yourself does, and you're competing with a bunch of other 19-year-olds, and nothing against the kid, but the guy that works for me, I mean, go for it, man. I mean, they, like, there's so much opportunity today. Yeah. Well, it, you know, one of the the key characteristics of the millennial generation, if you look at the profiles, is like millennials want to do work that matters to them. They want to make a difference. They want to make an impact. And me as an entrepreneur, 
like I look at that and I am thrilled because like are, you're telling me that there's a workforce out there that other people are like scared to work with so they're you know these people are clamoring for jobs and they want a job that they're going to throw themselves into with this fiery passion and work endlessly on a goal together like as an employer that is like an amazing proposition and i think the companies and the businesses and all you know the the solo guys and the the guys are doing their side hustle if you're able to figure out the you know how to work with those people and tap into that passion it's your unfair advantage right because you're going to have this these people that really want to do amazing things and they're going to work uh night and day for it and they're always on their phone uh and and then kind of another point i wanted to make that you made you know you said you you guys kind of found the internet and all this kind of stuff like we are at a time where building a business and just the internet in general but building a business has never been easier, more accessible, or cheaper than ever before. Like, I can go... Absolutely. Like, uh, you know, if I'm building an online business, I can go sign up for a MailChimp account, and the first 2,000 subscribers are completely free. And I basically have enterprise-level emailing software for $0. Like, that has, like, never existed ever in the history of humanity and it's completely free and I can get it in 10 seconds by with a Google search. Uh, so like there's these amazing tools, uh, there's amazing opportunities and yeah, we're just fortunate. Um, now, the counter argument there though, with this little, they're passionate and they want to do something that matters and they mm-hmm. want to do meaningful work. The, the, the problem there, and this, I spent years employing people and employed many people in that age bracket you want that? Well, first you have to do shit work so you get the skill set that will yeah. enable you to do – like you don't get to pick what you do out of the gate unless you're an extremely talented individual. And most people that think they're extremely talented aren't. Yeah. Or they haven't actually – you can also be talented, but you have to you have to get in the game, like kind of like you said later earlier, and nurture that talent. And that means you might have to play minor league ball for a couple years before you pick your team in the majors is kind of an analogy. And that's what I've seen kind of an impatience out of that. You know, like, you know, I want to do something. An example that's kind of totally off off base but brings it home is uh, Curtis Stone, who is a um, basically a spin farmer up in Canada. Oh, yeah, I know him. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's very well-known and all. He gets these young people that come out of college and they want to go work with him. And they're like, well, what are we doing today? Well, we're digging holes and planting the plants. Mm-hmm. Well, when are we going to get to social justice? <laughs> That's not what we do here. Right. That's not what we do at all. No, this is about, we're you know, kale th- here. <laughs> we're growing kale and we're selling it to high-end restaurants to earn a living. That's what we're doing. Well, we've got to feed the people in the ghetto. You know, that's... <laughs> And, and that's the kind of thing that I think becomes a stumbling block for for anybody. I don't want to say the millennials. Anybody that thinks that way, it just so happens that they're the people with no, especially the the backside of that generation, with no track record and no experience that feel that. You can feel that way once you have experience and you're desired by companies, but you have to you have to get good first. I mean, at something, mm-hmm. you know. So. Um, you had another business. You called it a co-working space. Yes. What's co-working and what was it like running that business? 
Yeah, so, you know, up until that point, most of my businesses were online businesses. Uh, you know, online publishing, uh, I've been traditionally published with publishers, uh, conferences, podcasts, you name it, all those kinds of things. Uh, and then I decided that I wanted to basically develop a second income stream uh, that was totally different. Because, you know, one of the big questions that hung in my mind when I was doing tiny houses was like, did I just time this right? Did I just get lucky? Mm. You know, like what, what part of this was luck versus like hard work and skill? And I, I couldn't answer that definitively. So what I decided to do, um, and I, I mentioned like this is kind of playing the game of entrepreneurship a, a little bit, but what I decided to do was I was going to choose a different business in a completely different field that was exactly opposite of what I was doing. And, and the main goal here was to develop an interesting business that I liked, but also an alternative revenue stream uh, that was concurrent with my, my tiny house stuff and other things I did. Uh, so I chose, you know, I spent some time thinking about it, um, and I chose what's called co-working. So co-working is a, it's basically a, a, a new model of like how we're going to have offices in the future, basically. And more and more we're, we're seeing this. I think Microsoft likes, moved like 15% of its workforce into like a co-working kind of environment. Um, but basically it's a, uh, an office space where we have work areas, conference rooms, uh, phone booths. Uh, in, in the case of my, the one that I started, we have a podcast studio and, and different, uh, and then an event space. And, and basically it's kind of like a gym membership. So people join as members, they pay a monthly fee and then they have access to uh, workspaces and the, all the conference rooms and things like that so that they can do their work, whatever their work is, uh, at a much more affordable rate than having you know a key man office. Like uh, in Charlotte, if you want a key man office, you're going to spend at least $1,000 a month. Um, the, the price point that we had uh, for the co-working space was $150 a month with no contract. That was month to month. And so it was affordable, it was flexible, and what you do is you come in, and at, when you're a member, and you, you know, come in through the door, and there's a huge open workspace, all these tables, there's people working all over, uh, with, you know, they're all independent solo entrepreneurs, sometimes they have a couple people with them, and they just uh, find a place to sit down and do their work. And if they need a quiet place to take a phone call or have a meeting, we had those resources available for them. And, uh, you know, it's just a different way to work. And, uh, it, it tended to skew a little bit more, you know, millennial and younger, but we, we had our, our full mix of young and old, different types of professions, uh, pretty much anything you can think of we had working in the space. And so, uh, much like a gym, um, you know, you, you know, gym only, let's say they have 10 treadmills, uh, but they'll have 50, let's say 50 members, right? Because they know that, uh, only, you know, 10 people at a time probably are going to be in the, the space at one time. So we, you know, we had about, uh, 75 workspaces and then we had a uh, hundred and, 
90 members or something like that uh, total. And then we just all did work. And we had different things like uh, Wednesday. We all, or anyone that wanted to, could get around a table and we all had lunch together. Uh, we had Christmas parties. Uh, we had different events. We had guest speakers. And uh, Fridays we would go out to lunch and uh, different things like that. Very cool, man. And I, it it, uh, it probably has a, a tremendous value not just with shared resources, but with basically networking. Oh, yeah. I mean, just – I have found, you know, groupthink. Like even two guys that aren't going to partner together, just being able to bounce ideas off each other. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's kind of like a maker space for entrepreneurship. That's exactly what it is. That's a great way to put it. Uh, yeah, so people were all the time – you know, they, they were – each individually running separate businesses, but they'd be like, hey, man, I want to flesh out this idea. Can we get a room and a whiteboard and and just talk through this? Or, uh, you know, the website guy needs some graphic work done, and there's a graphic designer, so he goes over to them because he has a relationship with them, because he had lunch with them, because we organized that lunch for them. Uh, So, yeah, there was a lot of interconnection. There was even some businesses born out of the space. and just a lot of uh, kind of synchronicity with it all. Very cool, man. So I, I want to get your thoughts on, on something, and because uh, I know there were people like when they saw the uh, the title of the show today, and Tiny House was like, oh boy, because I have this <laughs> I have this reputation of being a tiny house hater, and I'm not. I, I, cla- I, I clarified my position in the, the, the intro, but just so you can hear it, I actually think tiny house is used in a leveraged concept of a lifestyle or a great idea. Mm-hmm. What I, I think is a bad idea is the person that says, well, I, I want life freedom. And, uh, you know, you see these this couple on television sure. uh, with the blonde idiot, I call them. And uh, they're like, well, we're going to travel the whole country in our tiny house. And they, they spend like 85 grand. Mm-hmm. To build a tiny house to live debt free, they have no idea where the hell they're going to put it. They put it on this trailer. They have a half ton pickup, and they act like they're going to drive it around like it's a fifth wheel RV. Right. To me, you've spent more money than you'll ever get from the damn thing. You could have bought a freaking house, not the greatest house. You could buy a freaking house for eighty five grand somewhere. Yep. Um, and you, I, I here's like this was sold me on you. Like when I saw your thing came and I pulled up your site and I saw like your experience moving your house. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I bet you, I bet you, he's not going to tell people that they can run around like they have a camper, you know, with a tiny house. It wasn't like, so, I mean, I, do you maybe look at the tiny house shows like I do at, like, Doomsday Preppers? Like, when that came out, I'm like, these people are really <laughs> dumbasses. But it's good for me because it, it creates awareness. You know, that's, a, that's great, you know, because people go on and a survival podcast. Oh, look at this, right? So, like, yeah. that's kind of like how, like, the, like, basically if the mainstream touches something, they seem to screw it up. Yeah, well, I, I'll tell you, like, reality TV shows are just like, uh, and sorry. Idiocy. Is, yeah, it's <laughs> business, I'm sorry. But, like, I, I've had enough experience. They are some of the most toxic industries that I've ever just seen, unfortunately. This is how it is. Um, and I think the tiny houses are probably the shows skew much better than some of the other stuff out there, but um, I'll give them that. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not freaking Moonshiners or Duck Dynasty, right. all right? I mean, you know. <laughs> well, hey, you know, whatever. Each their own. But, uh, yeah, so I, to your point, okay. So, someone who goes out and buys uh, a tiny house for $85,000. 
I, I guess the first thing I'd say is I can't tell anyone what to do with their money. That's sure. Yeah, you know they're grown ass adults. They they can do what they want. Um, and I, but what I usually will say when I hear someone wanting to do that and they're throwing around those kinds of numbers, and I I ask them like, why do you want it to pay someone to build? And uh, you know, sometimes the answer is I'm wheelchair bound. I couldn't build this house if I wanted to. You know, okay, makes, makes the, sense, right? Uh, but then I also hear like, um, you know, a disproportionate number of my readership is female. So uh, you, my average readership is a like forty to fifty year old woman, uh, and it skews more female for whatever reason. Um, and I, I see this a lot is there's women out there who have just never had the chance to build anything, to use tools, uh, and they build it up in their head. And I think society kind of plays into this, right? You know, men use tools, women do these other things. And, and I think those are breaking down and probably for the better. Uh, but, you know, I, I see uh, a lot of women and even men, uh, you know, it isn't exclusive to women, but they're they're scared to try. They're scared of the tools. Uh, they they don't think they can do it. And one of the things about tiny houses that I find is like, with very rare exceptions, anyone that is able to put in the effort, that is willing to try hard enough, can absolutely build a tiny house even if they've never built anything before. And I do it every single year. We put on a conference, tinyhouseconference.com, and every single year I get, you know, hundreds of people coming, and we take them from, I've never, like, I've hung a picture on the wall, and that Mm -hmm. is it, to I'm going to build a tiny house. And we teach them the process, the steps, the considerations, the systems that they're going to be building with this house, uh, all the considerations that they need to make and, uh, you know, how to navigate some of the larger decisions. Almost anyone can build a tiny house. So my, my hesitancy when I, I see people wanting to spend uh, 85000 and I've seen a lot more too, unfortunately, uh, yeah. it's that, you know, are you doing this because you're putting up a wall and, and you're, you're, you know, the self-talk in your mind is I can't do this because I guarantee you, Almost all of you can. Absolutely. And not only that, it, it's going to be one of the more rewarding things that you do in your life because it's going to be one of the most difficult things to do in your life. And, you know, some of the hardest things in life, they may not be the greatest things, but, uh, you know, you will learn more in that time about yourself, about what you want, about who you are as a person uh, than you will on anything. So um, I always like, to just like check in with people when they're considering that uh, because the big advantage, there's two big advantages with tiny houses when it comes to a a cost in building is one, because they're smaller, they inherently cost less, but it's surprising how, how little of a discount because you still have to put in your major systems like your HVAC, your, uh, your plumbing, your electrical, all those things you have, pretty much the same as a, a large home, maybe a little smaller scale. But And the second thing is the big cost savings with tiny houses is you're building it yourself because about 50 to 60% of the embodied cost of a home when it's first built is labor. 
Sure it is. And, and you know, sure and, it is. and they have to insurance and their profits and all that kind of stuff is mixed in there. So, like, you know, I, I just see it's a it's a major advantage to build it yourself. It gives people confidence. It is a rewarding activity, and then people come out on the other side with this amazing skill set. Like, you know, I was I had dabbled with some tools I'd used table saw before. It wasn't like a woodworker by any measure before I started my tiny house. I built like a bat box, like a bat house in eighth grade shop. And that was pretty much the extent of what I did when I was starting. And I built a whole house. And a tiny house is just a large house in a smaller scale. So I, every single system, every single function and factor uh, of a large home goes into a tiny house. So I have experience with electrical, plumbing, uh, you know, gas connections, uh, framing, roofing, you know, putting in flooring, everything uh, that a a large house does um, is in a tiny house. And I learned after, I really love woodworking. I think I only have one house in me. I I think I'm done. (laughs) But, uh, you know, like smaller things, I really, you know, like, boxes and other woodworking projects is something that I'd really like to pursue. And I learned that through building my tiny house. So yeah, when, when I hear people saying, I want to you know, buy a house, have a builder, you know, do what you want. But I also want to make sure that you are thinking about it the right way. That makes sense. I, I think my big thing has always been the, the belief that this thing is, is, is as mobile as they're made out to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a big, I totally understand the wheels because of two things. Number one, you get around a lot of bullshit. Mm-hmm. The department of making you're sad. It's not. It's, <laughs> it's not a permanent structure, right? And then the other thing is is mobility. And I, I guess I mean mobility this way. Let's say that one day you decided you didn't want to live in the Carolinas anymore, and you found a really awesome place to live in Middle Tennessee, which by the way is a great place to live. And so you decide you want to move to Tennessee. Well, you can move your whole freaking house, right? But you're not driving around truck stop to truck stop with it. And, I mean, you can tell me what you would do. But if I had a tiny house, let's say in Georgia, and I want to make a big move, let's say to Oregon, because now you can pump your own gas there. Um, <laughs> and hopefully they won't set the place on fire, oh, right? Oh, uh, yeah, right? But if, if I had to move a tiny house from Georgia to Oregon or Georgia to Maine, um, I would contract somebody mm-hmm. to move my freaking house. And I would drive my freaking regular stuff there. Stress free. I've owned an RV, like an RV mate, and I'm towing a little RV with an F three fifty. There's no strain on the vehicle at all. But I've been in three lanes where they take the shoulder away, and you're in the middle lane, and two guys in semis decide they want to sit on both sides of you and pretend they're on Star Trek and mark, match your course and speed. <laughs> it's not fun. And thinking about having a freaking twenty two foot tall, top heavy house behind me in that scenario. I don't want anything to do with it. I think when it's marketed as that level of mobility freedom, it's just not true. Yeah, I mean, so it's uh, it's one of those things where, sure, you can do it. Do you want to do it? <laughs> question, right? You know, you can jump out of an eighty-story building if you want yeah, to. Exactly. It's gonna hurt, though. Well, it only hurts for a second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know, I have friends that that do tow their houses full time. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is not for the faint of heart. Uh, they, I think, one of my friends have driven twenty five thousand miles towing their tiny Holy house. Holy crap! And 
now, how big is that one, though? Is that one of these, like, huge ones, or is it, like, one of these little 96-square-foot things? Yeah, I think it's, like, it's uh, between 150 and 200, so it's about mid-range. Okay, um, okay. But I'll, I'll tell you this. You know what their mile per gallon is? Five. <laughs> Five. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, they spend half their working life paying for gas, uh, hmm. and, you know, and that's what they want to do, and you can do it. Uh, but, it, you know, what I tell people is they're like, oh, yeah, I want to you know, go around the U.S. and all that. It's like, great. Go buy a used camper. Do that. And then when you get back, sell it and then use that money. And, and right. tiny house. Like, if that's what you, you know what? So the guy that wrote the book on tiny houses agrees with me on the RV thing. Yeah, so, I, and that's that's what I've always said. Right. I mean, like, use the, the, the right tool for the job. OK. I mean, yes, you can do it. Uh, but it's going to be safer. It's going to be easier. It's going to be more enjoyable. And you know those campers, um, you know they're a lot lighter. They're built a lot less. You know the, the construction's a lot less. Uh, and they're also aerodynamic. Yeah, they're, they're not a big right? giant rectangle, right? They like because I've you know I had a camper. A tra- it was a trailer actually. It wasn't aerodynamic. <laughs> And you could be going downhill, and if you let off the gas, you could feel it breaking you yep. after a certain speed because it would get a certain point where the wind resistance was greater than the downhill momentum. Right. Like a sail, right? But, so when I see these, you know, and they like, is that really going to go under that overpass? This oh, is going to be cool, right? right? I'm just you know, for the video footage, like a security cam on one of those lights. That, oh, it's going to be an awful day <laughs> for that person, but it's going to happen, unfortunately. <laughs> I know I did see it with a mobile home, like a you know, like a, a trailer, just like a year ago. Uh-huh. I was coming down my little like state highway here, and like the traffic's backed up, and I'm in my F350, so I, you know, I just bulldozed through the through the dirt and went into the access road. As I got up on it, it was a uh, like a half of a double wide. I think I had it crammed under oh, an overpass. Geez. Yeah. And what they ended up doing, they let the air out of the trailer, right? That, that it was on mm-hmm. to to lower it, and they were able to back it out. Yep. But it still wouldn't fit under there. Yeah. And it was a mile back to the next place you could get off the highway. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So that was a mess. I was glad I had four-wheel drive that day. But uh, yeah, I, anyway, man, oh, go ahead. I, was, I had a friend who, um, you know, all, all of our tiny houses, we build them to, you know, Department of Transportation spec- specifications. So 13 and a half feet is the highest we'll go. Uh, and, and that's because of bridges. And so he, he was driving along one day. And he, he saw a bridge, and it was like, he's like, okay, my house is just going to fit. And what he didn't realize was, since they had made that bridge, they also repaved underneath. And so he <laughs> peeled off the the ridge cap of his roofing, and it just, like, crumpled into, like, a, a five-foot piece. And the rest of his house went through, but he, he had to replace that whole bit. It just scraped, like, just, just the very top of it. It was... Kind of crazy. Could have been a worse day than it was. Yeah, well, so anyway, way worse. So anyway, tell people about your website, your book, all that good stuff here. Yeah, so, uh, you know, my name is Ryan Mitchell. I write over at thetinylife.com, and there we talk about, uh, you know, tiny houses, of course. We talk about minimalism and homesteading, uh, which is basically more simple ways to live. And a lot of what we do is, uh, you know, trying to help people 
figure out what's right for them, what lives they want to lead, and how they can go after that and give them the tools to, to do whatever they want. And, you know, obviously we, we talk about more simple living there. Uh, the book is um, Tiny House Living, which you can find on Amazon and any big bookstore anywhere. Uh, and then we also do our event at the tinyhouseconference.com. Uh, so those are some of the places that you can find me. Very, very cool. And I, I almost forgot to do this. Like, what are your thoughts on site built? Like, whether it's a shed conversion or what have you. If you're in a place where there is no department of making you sad to cause trouble, like where I live right now, if I wanted to build as a guest house, a tiny house, mm-hmm. I'm 15 minutes from downtown Fort Worth. If I was doing it in downtown Fort Worth or even in the city proper, there'd be all kinds of code guys. in there. But since I'm out in the county and, it, you know, it's like... I if I'm not cooking meth, no one cares. Right. So if you're in that situation, do you feel that there are advantages to site-built type, uh, you know, type homes? Uh, yeah, I, you know, it it all depends, right? Um, it I, could be square. I mean, that's yeah. the first. Thing, right? Yeah, you know, squarish. It's you know, we'll, we'll go for that. But uh, yeah, I, I would say first do your research because a lot of people I, I see they they get excited about it and they think there's no building codes, there's no zoning. Uh, but maybe there's a state building code or zoning thing that is an umbrella thing that even though their city may not have it, they're still beholden to this or other regulatory things. So you really need to do your, your research. Uh, the next thing is, like, just be realistic. Are you going to be moving in the next X number of years? And, you know, just do the math on that. Like, if you had to walk away from it, is that okay? Uh, and then, you know, if you're going to be site-built, it's, it's easier, right? Because uh, my trailer was $2,600 I bought, like, uh, and that was the foundation of, of my house, obviously. Uh, you can pour a slab for a lot cheaper if you're just doing that small a square footage. Uh, so you could do it yourself almost. Um, so, yeah, there's some cost savings. There's some uh, things that you need to do your research on, uh, but, you know, figure out what's right for your situation. Very, very cool, man. Well, again, I found the book, Tiny House Living. I'll have a link in the show notes for people today. I will link to your website. you got a lot of really great stuff there. Thank you. And I definitely think people should get over and check you out, subscribe to your blog. I'm sure you've got a way to subscribe over there so people can get updates and what have you. Yes. And, and Ron, I appreciate you being with us today, man. Oh, thank you so much. See, and I'm not a tiny house Nazi. It's, 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 it's a misunderstanding. All right, man. I, I enjoyed talking with you today. Have a great day. All right, you too. Thanks. All right, great interview with a cool guy, man. Remember, check out his website. It's called thetinylife.com. And the other URL you always want to remember so you can help support us and the work that we do without actually costing yourself a penny more is tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, tspaz.com. When you ever want to shop online, you can get on over to amazon.com from there and check stuff out there. And anytime you shop at tspaz.com, when you shop online, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. You see all my great reviews. My reviews are awesome because they are all things that I own and use in my own home. Today is one, today is one that I've, I've featured a lot, and I'll continue to feature it for the rest of my life because I feel I owe the health of my knee to it. Uh, a couple of years ago, I tore uh, my knee pretty bad. The not the ACL, but the LCL and MCL and meniscus. Uh, I was uh, told that surgery would be my only option, and I'm not a doctor and I don't play one on TV. But I decided to go with Comfrey, and because I was in pain and didn't have time to fart around, I didn't make up any of my own and go through the yard trying to find some Comfrey the ducks didn't eat. 
And I got a hold of Dr. Christopher's. I started applying it to my knee, and I believe it was a huge part of my recovery. I have not had surgery to this day, and my right knee is as good as it ever was. It's not perfect, but when you jump out of airplanes when you're a kid, which is what I did in the military, your knees are never going to be perfect. But damn, they're in pretty good shape. And I've heard from many people in this audience who have used it for everything from sprains, strains, tears, Uh, broken bones are retreated with other means as well, uh, that all are pleased with the results. I can't tell you, you know, the diagnosis treats or prevents any disease, and comfrey is supposed to be evil. Ah! But I'm going to tell you, in my opinion, this stuff works. It's worth checking out. Um, I have seen through my reporting literally hundreds and hundreds of containers of this stuff go out the door. And the total number of people who have emailed me and said, Jack, you're a jerk, this stuff doesn't work and I don't like it, is a zero. That tells you everything you need to know. You can find the review today at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You can find all my reviews at tspaz.com. And if you shop at tspaz.com, whenever you shop online, you'll help support TSP and the show that you listen to every day. That brings us to our song of the day. As I mentioned uh, during my interview with uh, Ryan, it is "Working Class Hero" by John Lennon. It's one of the uh, one of the few songs that uh, John Adam has selected for us as our music program director. I guess that's what he is at this point. Uh, that I've actually played before on the air, and I'm, I'm fine with that because this is one of my all-time favorite songs as we go through a week of John Lennon, which actually is a week plus a day because I skipped Monday, uh, took the day off, and ran a rewind for you guys first day of the year for New Year's Day. Um, this song kind of fits today's show perfectly, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about freedom and what have you. And John Lennon was like given a bunch of crap for this song because they're like you were raised by your affluent aunt who was upper middle class and you know you didn't you're not a working class here you're a musician and you know his response was kind of to the point of you know I've been very famous and very successful and been happy and unhappy and I was the complete unknown in my own country and I was happy and unhappy and what have you and you know he said this song is not about socialism and it's it, people miss the point of the song and my actually way that I take this song is about how we're indoctrinated and controlled and set up basically mostly in K through 12 kindergarten through 12th grade you know and he says 20 years and actually you kind of come out 18 to 20 years old is the the, the age range that people come out of high school And in England, I don't know, maybe there's an extra year, what have you. Maybe you're closer to 20 on average, where I think over here in the United States is 18, 19. And I, I, I think that, you know, he, he talks about basically not even being able to, to think or make a decision or choose because you're too scared to when you come out of high school. Pick a career now. I don't know what to do at all. It sounds an awful lot like the millennial generation Ryan and I were talking about, too, right? And this, this was in when? In 1970. 1970. It's, it's, it's not like things have changed as much as I think sometimes as we think they have. But I, I think the bigger overriding message is we are actually convinced by the marketing. Everybody go to college. You know, education is priceless. All this crap that, that has some truth. And see, the best lies in marketing are based on truths and then twisted to, to the advantage of those in power or those on the hill, as it says in the last line of this song to believe that like there is nobility and being a battery see i kind of look at this like the matrix 
You know, where everybody's just a battery. Everybody's an energy producer for the machine. Everybody has to be an obedient cog or, or sprocket in the machine. You could be a sprocket or you could be a cog, but you have to be a part of the machine. And that's what the programming is designed. And you're a hero for doing that. You always hear politicians talk about the middle class, the middle class, the middle class. They don't just talk about the middle class because that's the most people. Even if they're not middle class, they, they think of themselves as middle class, and it's the, the, the group you have to get the votes from to get elected. They, they talk about it as though the middle class is a hero. You're a hero because you're middle class. Well, there's idiots in the middle class. There's good people in the middle class. There's heroes in the middle class. There's normal, every average workaday people in the middle class that are not heroic about anything. That they, you're not heroic because you work 40 hours a week. That's not heroic. You know, jumping into freezing water at risk of your own life to pull somebody to safety. That's freaking heroic. But we want, you see, when people say nice things about you, good things about you, it's easy to believe them even when you know it's bullshit. And that is a great way to get a slave to polish his own chains and put them on his own neck. And, and that's the society that we're living in, and we have been living in for decades. The slaves are proud slaves, they're working class heroes. But, you know, like we talked about today, tiny houses and debt-free living, just one of many paths to casting off your chains and writing your own rules. And that way, you won't be hit like a two-by-four by one of Mr. Lennon's lines in this song. And I'll warn you, he does use the F word twice. You still look like a fucking slave to me. Because someone who has gotten out of it, whether it's through celebrity or just smart living, that's how we see the rest of the world. Because we see the truth. And the only way to get past a problem is first admit the problem. You want to stop being a slave? You have to admit that's what you are. And then you have to emancipate yourself. I think emancipate yourself was an episode we did in the first hundred episodes of the show. That's how long we've been giving you the same message. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. They make you feel small By giving you no time instead of it all Till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all A working class hero is something to be Working class hero is something to be They hurt you at home and they hit you at school They hate you if you're clever and they despise a fool Till you're so fucking crazy you can't follow their rules Working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be When they've tortured and scared you for twenty odd years Then they expect you to pick a career When you can't really function, you're so full of fear.
working class hero is something to be. A working class hero is something to be. Keep it doped with religion and sex and TV. And you think you're so clever and classless and free. But you're still fucking peasants as far as I can see. A working class hero is something to be. A working class hero is something to be. There's room at the top, they are telling you still. First, you must learn how to smile as you kill. If you want to be like the folks on the hill, a working class hero is something to be. A working class hero is something to be. If you want to be a hero, well, just follow me. If you want to be a hero, well, just follow me.